Welcome to the One in One Podcast, where below average podcaster chats with an above average athlete. I'm your host, Bridget B. My guest today is Scott Ratliff, a professional lacrosse player for the Archers of the Premier Lacrosse League. Scott played collegiately at Loyola University of Maryland from 2010 to 2013 and was a member of the 2012 National Championship team. Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Well, I'm happy to have you. You're so impressive. You've done so much. I can't wait to get into it. So you grew up in Marietta, Georgia. You've got an older sister, so you're the baby of the family. That's correct. (laughs) Now, your father has a lacrosse background. He was actually an All-American for the University of Maryland. Is that how you got into lacrosse through him? Yeah, that's right. So um, lacrosse wasn't, wasn't very big down in Atlanta. My dad actually grew up in Georgia and moved to um, outside of Baltimore when he was in ninth grade. And that was the first time he ever saw lacrosse. And mm-hmm. so he picked it up in high school and played. And uh, his story is actually pretty cool. He went to University of Maryland on a football scholarship at first. And when he was there, you know, he played in like a summer lacrosse league before football started. And the lacrosse coaches saw him and had a spot and asked him if he would want to play both. And he went to the football coach and said, you know, I'd like to play both sports. And the football coach told him no. So he quit football and decided to play lacrosse. And, you know, he told me that story at a young age and just explained that, you know, one, he just said, look, I felt like, you know, I wasn't going to go to the NFL and football games were fun, but practice was kind of a pain. And he was like, I loved lacrosse every time I played. And so that was kind of what led him to make that decision. And, you know, I played all the sports growing up, you know, everyone you could think of, but I would just have that same sentiment that lacrosse was the only one that it was just like, you never got in the car and were like, Oh, I don't feel like playing today. You know, I just Mm -hmm. always loved it and was always excited about it. And obviously I had somebody in my household who loved the sport uh, equally. And I can remember even, you know, the seasons that I would play baseball, I played one or two seasons of baseball in middle school. My dad would come and he would pitch batting practice with his lacrosse stick. So, you know, I, I think it was really just kind of in my blood and, and a part of my life that, you know, I always had those sticks around and I always had somebody to play catch with. And so uh, it kind of just stuck with me that way. I would love to be like walking around the park and see a man pitching a, with a lacrosse stick to his son. That is an interesting image. It was, it was definitely strange. And what, the funniest part was that he would use his stick from the 70s. So like, it wasn't even like a modern lacrosse stick. It was like this old, really heavy metal stick with with leather uh, mesh in it. Um, But he would throw strikes every time. And like the other coaches who were who were baseball guys, uh, they couldn't hit the strike zone with their arms as much as he could with his stick. So it it was a pretty useful tool for uh, for batting practice. That is so cool. And hey, you're definitely sticking with the right sport if you can get in the car and never be like, Oh, I don't want to go to practice today. It's a great sign. I think it's a, it's a big part of, you know, why lacrosse has exploded. And when I was growing up in Atlanta, it was very, very, you know, little known. Like I, even with some of my closest friends in high school, like had never seen a game and never came to my games. It just wasn't really a part of the culture yet. And that, mm-hmm. that certainly has changed now, but you know, every time that we would get a new friend off the football team or the basketball team to come out and try it, you know, they would fall in love. It's just such a, a fun sport to play. And, um, you know, the other thing my dad did make mention of, of his decision in college was he was just like, I saw football players left and right, you know, breaking their legs and having back problems for their whole life and, and shoulder issues. And, you know, lacrosse kind of can give you that like physical thing that you're looking from for out of the sport without, you know, being quite as damaging on the body. So I think those are, you know, a lot of the reasons that you see it now becoming 
increasingly more popular at the youth level, um, and hopefully that translates to popularity, you know, in, in college and at the professional level as well. Yeah, I mean, your dad was pretty future thinking on that because CTE stuff didn't even happen back then until, I mean, that's more recent. Yeah, yeah, and it wasn't that. I mean, it wasn't so much the brain injuries. He was just kind of looking at the other stuff, like yeah. The, like yeah, I mentioned the knees and the, all all the other injuries that come from football. But he's a he's a pretty conservative guy and thinker. So I always make fun of him like that. In college, uh, the last thing I was worried about was injuries. Like it's yeah. so funny that you you thought of it that way, but that's pretty on brand for his uh, personality. But I have to agree. I mean, I don't have kids yet, but. When one day, if I have a son, I think I would like him playing lacrosse rather than football. If I had the choice, obviously the choice is his. But as far as injuries go, I, I would agree. Yep, I think it's a, I think it's a fair point as well. I mean, I, I'm in my eighth year of professional lacrosse and, and four of college, and you know, I'm lucky enough I've never had to miss a game and never really had a serious injury. So wow, that's um, amazing. You know, I think it's it's unique in that way that it's. Uh, it's a physical sport, but it, it's one that, you know, more like hockey or, or other things, you're going to get more bumps or bruises than you are, you know, broken bones for the for most sure. part. Absolutely. Now, because lacrosse wasn't as big in the South as you were growing up, I imagine club lacrosse is you had to play that in order to eventually get recruited for college. Am I right? So actually not. Um, yeah. Club lacrosse was like really like, I'm, I'm getting old, you know, it was, it was not really that existent when I was that age. So like the recruiting scene was very much like what was called showcases. And you just go as an individual and you'd play in, in these, you know, they stick you on teams and you play in these camps. Um, and I did do a few of those, but my recruiting experience was really unique. Just being from, from Georgia where um, at the time, you know, virtually no players were coming at us. So you weren't, you know, getting coaches to, to watch us. When we did throw together some teams and go play in tournaments, you know, we weren't able to play in like the top divisions because we didn't have the depth of talent to compete at that level. So it was challenging to get recruited that way. And then these showcases, you know, if you show up to them as a complete unknown, it can be hard to, to stand out. And I was a little bit of a late bloomer. I wasn't, a, um, I wasn't the best player by any, any stretch of the imagination in high school. So the recruiting process was a real struggle for me. Um, and the way we approached it and, you know, my parents were lucky that they were kind of uh, smart enough to have this strategy, but we approached it the same way you would approach getting a job and, and really made it about networking. You know, I had between my father, um, two high school coaches, and, you know, one other local coach uh, here in Atlanta, I had four guys who had all played at the highest level, at, one at Rutgers, one at Loyola, one at Navy, and then my dad at Maryland. And what my parents did was basically make a list and it started with, and I say my parents, myself and my parents, and we started with those four coaches, and then we wrote down, okay, with the, between you know, my dad and these other three guys, what schools do, they, do we know that they have relationships with coaches on the staff, right? And so you know, that, that list of schools, you know, each one of those coaches maybe had a former teammate at two or three different colleges, and so that ended up being like a list of 10 to 15 schools, and we pretty much only pursued those schools, and we just knew that my best bet to get recruited was going to be to have, you know, somebody that had a relationship with a college coach to say, look, I know players aren't coming here from Atlanta, but we think this kid can play. We'd like you to watch them. And that's essentially how it worked. I ended up with only two offers. And one of them was from Navy where my, you know, my, one of my uh, off season coaches had played. And, and the other one was from Loyola where my high school coach had played. So um, that's advice that I give to a lot of young people now is, you know, recruiting events and, 
listen, if you're the best player, they're going to find you for the most part. Um, but being savvy and just understanding how the importance of relationships and, you know, if you're a college coach, just like if you're a boss hiring somebody, if somebody you really know and trust is calling you and saying, you know, this is your kind of kid, you're going to be more inclined to, to take a risk on somebody than if you're just kind of seeing them play one time at a, a showcase. So that was our strategy for recruiting. And um, as I mentioned, it, it worked out for the best for me. Yeah, I mean, relationships are key. I mean, that's you realize that early on in your life, and I, you're almost, what, 29, 30? I'm sure you know now even more so. Absolutely. That was my kind of my first, uh, I think, real experience in understanding how networking works and, and just how important it is to, uh, to anything, really. Yeah. But, you know, you said you weren't the most recruited. I do have to say, though, you had a great high school career. You attend George Walton Comprehensive School, and you were two-time All-State and an All-American as a senior. And you also played football. And you guys, I believe, won, what, a region title? Yeah, we were, uh, you know, we were a really good football team. But, um, you know, I was far from the best player on that team either. We had, uh, we had some, some studs to, to go play at the highest level. That's obviously kind of the sport in Georgia that, um, that's taken really seriously. So that was a great experience. And, and you know, I, I did okay and, and did well on my high school team. We never, you know, won a playoff game in my four years there. And, um, again, I, I was able to, you know, do All-State and All-American. But at that time, there just wasn't a lot of guys in Georgia taking lacrosse seriously. So yeah. I did have a, a handful of other players um, who went on to play in college that were my age that, you know, I would compete against and compare myself to. But um, it was just a different time then with lacrosse. It just really felt more like a rec league sport in high school than, than um been a varsity sport and you know I would tell people that my experience playing high school football down here probably better prepared me for playing lacrosse at Loyola than my high school lacrosse experience did I mean football was a place where I really learned how to um, you know watch film and train like a a, a full-time athlete and do those things so uh, I'm grateful for that experience as well for sure now, I'm sure you don't regret picking Loyola, as you shouldn't, but I'd love to know, was part of you kind of bummed that the University of Maryland uh, wasn't an offer for you since your dad had played there? Uh, yeah, I was super bummed about that. I mean, that was, my, you know, my entire life. That was my dream was, um, you know, my dad was a two-time captain and a two-time All-American at Maryland. And, you know, I had, from first grade, had kind of piece of paper with my goals saying, go to Maryland, be a two-time captain, be a two-time All-American. I mean, that was always what I talked about, what I wanted to do. And, um, you know, to, to Maryland's credit, you know, they did look at me and they, they obviously, you know, knowing who my dad was and um, having that relationship, like they recruited me a little bit. And, you know, they had told me if, if I was open to going to prep school for a year that possibly there might be a spot for me in the next class. Um, and then, they, you know, they gave me some honest feedback that, that I'll always remember from Coach Cottle um, who was the coach in Maryland at the time, he just said, you know, we think you're, you're a great player, but you're probably a better fit at a, a mid-major, was the, the wording he chose to describe it. So um, that certainly turned into a major motivator for me. I, I didn't feel like shifted because, again, I, and I'm not just really saying this to try to be humble, but I wasn't the best player. It wasn't like I was going to these showcases and just dominating. So I, didn't, I almost didn't blame Maryland. I don't, don't know if I really saw myself as – on the same level as, as some of the guys they were recruiting. Um, but I obviously believed I could get to that level. And I was just, I was on the younger side for my age. And obviously I'd never really played high level lacrosse, so I thought I had kind of a, a lot of room to improve. And uh, again, Loyola took a chance and then, you know, that comes full circle and, and we ended up beating Maryland in the championship. And um, that whole idea of a mid-major kind of was uh, turned into a, a, a nice little smile and, and memory for me. 
Yes, I cannot wait to talk about that game. Ugh. <laughs> but you said, you know, it was Navy or Loyola. Those were your two real options. So what was it about Loyola that kind of put that over the edge over Navy? Um, you know, frankly, it was just that it wasn't a, a military academy. Mm. And, um, you know, I had, a, I had a, a ton and still have a ton of respect for, for Navy and Army and Air Force. And, um, you know, I was, I was humbled by the opportunity to go play there. And I, I actually had committed there. It was the only offer I'd gotten at the start of my senior year when kind of guys were starting to commit. Um, and I was going to go to NAPS. I didn't have the grades to get straight into the academy. Um, and that was like another big turnoff was just in the South, there wasn't really this culture of prep school like there is in the Northeast. So like I didn't have any friends in any sport that I knew of that were going to prep school. And I kind of saw that as like, oh, he's not ready to play in college yet. And if I, if I knew then what I know now, I wouldn't have been so opposed to it. I mean, I got to Loyola and half my freaking teammates were three years older than me and had reclassed and done prep school and all this stuff. But for me, I really thought I was ready to go in and play. Um, so I think it was a combination of that and also just it wasn't so much that I wanted to be um, a service member and then also wanted to play lacrosse. It was that I wanted to play lacrosse, and if I had to be a service member to do that, I was willing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just kind of knew in my heart that that probably wasn't the right approach if you're going to go to an academy. You know, I think gotcha. that that's the place where you're choosing a career more so than anything else. And, uh, you know, I, I was just excited to kind of have an opportunity to explore a career in, in business or, or entrepreneurship, which is obviously where I've kind of ended up now. Yeah, no, I uh, 100% agree with you. I, I was never recruited for anything sports-wise to a school, but I think I would have the same ideas that you did. If I have to had to go to Army or Navy, it would be an honor for them to recruit me, but am I willing to give those four years after I graduate to them? And the people that do it, God bless them. You know, that's why America is the greatest country, but I agree with you on that. It's tough. Yeah, I think it's just, it's just uh, responsible to make sure you're, you're making the decision for the right reasons with those mm-hmm. schools. And, you know, I've sent a lot of players there and some of the, the best leaders and best kids I've coached, and I'm super proud of them. Um, and, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sure I would have, I would have loved it. I, I think I, I would have done fine with the experience, but the combination of that mixed with not having to go to prep school and just being able to go straight into a, a college team, that was kind of the, the two things that, that pushed me towards Loyola. Yeah, yeah, you don't want to do a fifth year of high school. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. You get to Loyola in the summer of 2009. Now, how was that transition from high school lacrosse to college lacrosse? You know, it was fine for me. Um, I, I came in with a lot of confidence. I, you know, I, it was almost like this, this ignorance is bliss. You know, I just kind of believed I was, you know, belonged there, and I, I believed I was going to go in and play right away. I don't know why I believed that. I didn't really have much evidence. It wasn't like I was their top recruit or anything close to it. Um, but I just showed up with that expectation. And you know, the, the, the one thing that I always did well was, was prepare, you know, and I came in and I was one of the, the best finishers in the run test right off the bat and, and high school football in, in Georgia, it, it teaches you how to use a weight room. So I, you know, I did really well in all of our strength and conditioning testing and kind of knew my way around that piece of it. So from a lot of those standpoints, I was, I was ready to go. And, you know, I found success on the field right away. And I think the only thing that maybe, I had to develop before I was ready to really step into a, a leadership role. There was, was just more maturity as a lot of freshmen in college do. Um, <laughs> so and I, I think I spent a lot of my freshman year finding that. And then, uh, you know, felt like I was a, a key player and a leader on the team for, for the next three years there. 
Yeah, you absolutely were. But yeah, you're right. I mean, you played right away as a freshman. And honestly, as the season kept going on, you would get more and more playing time. So that must have felt good that you were doing something right. Yeah, it did. You know, the, the truth behind it is, is I got in a little bit of trouble um, off the field early on in my freshman year. So um, without, without going into too much detail, uh, that set me back a little bit. I think I was, I was like in position where I, I had a chance to be a starter, spend a lot of time on the field right off the bat. Um, but as I mentioned, I think I needed to just grow up a little bit and mm -hmm. learn a couple lessons the hard way. And that put me on the bench for a little longer than I would have liked. But as the season went on, you know, I, I started to, to get out there more and more. And actually my first start in a college game was in the NCAA tournament game my freshman year. So, you know, by the end of that season, I had worked my way up to depth start and, and found a starting role. Um, and so, again, I, I never really looked back from there. Good for you. Now, you play the long stick midfield position in college. Was that the position that you had always played, or did you have to learn a new position at Loyola? Um, so I had played pretty much every position uh, in high school. We, and again, this goes back to just the unique experience of playing a sport in a place where that sport really isn't established yet. Um, I just, you know, I was, because I had really good stick skills, which is so important in lacrosse, I was kind of qualified to play any position on the field for my high school team. So at times I would play close defense. At times I would play um, midfield with a short stick. And, you know, I would switch in the middle of games between those two positions. So I never really played long stick midi, but I played this combination of, you know, essentially two-way midfield with a shorty or close D with a long pole. So I actually think in, the, in this position in lacrosse, it's, you see the same story from a lot of the guys that are the, the top guys now um, playing, where it's, it's a lot of guys who kind of started out as, as short poles or midfielders, maybe were a little bit better at defense, and, and then the long pole kind of connected. And, you know, my dad had played defense, so he certainly was better equipped to teach me how to play that position and some of the fundamentals well. So even though I hadn't really played it, I always knew that that's what I would be in college, right? So, like, mm -hmm. even as I was a junior in high school and I'm playing offense most of the time, I knew that to get recruited, I was going to need to get recruited as a long stick midi. So if I would go to a showcase or any sorts of events like that, that's usually the position I would, I would put myself at. Um, and then again, I, you know, I got to college and kind of plugged right in there and never, uh, never messed around with anything else. Nice, nice. No, kind of weird question, but in high school, since you did play kind of all around, was it, would it be weird to switch from that smaller stick to the larger stick and back and forth? I mean, I thought it was a, I thought it was a blast. Like you just, and nothing ever got old. Like you was like, you got to do everything. And, you know, I was the only guy that really was doing that in the state or, or around. So I thought it was really fun. And um, again, I'm just really grateful for my experience doing that because I think in the long run and, and the way I play the game now is I'm, I'm a very offensive minded uh, long stick midfielder. And that just goes back to my experience in high school with, you know, that's how I played. I played defense and I knew I was better at it, but I was also relied on the score goals. And uh, so that kind of part of, my high school playing experience in Georgia has, you know, stuck with me to this day. And again, I think it's something that, you know, there's a lot of advantages, obviously, to playing in a hotbed area. Um, but maybe this was one of, of not playing in a hotbed area was that if I was at a, a big time lacrosse school, you know, they wouldn't have needed me to do all that stuff. And I wouldn't have gotten a chance to learn so many different positions and, and go back and forth. So That's I think that was one point. that actually worked to my advantage a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Loyola today is in the Patriot League Conference, but when you were playing, they were in the Eastern College Athletic Conference, correct? Yeah, the gotcha. ECAC, that's right. <laughs> nice, nice. 
Now, your sophomore year, you play in every game, and you actually lead the team and cause turnovers. So, as you know, defense, obviously really important. You're a good defender. Yeah, so, uh, the, you know, the, the ECAC was a weird collection of teams. It was like a, a bunch of teams that had no home playing in, in this conference. And uh, my sophomore year there, I was uh, started to find success. I mentioned I started the last game my freshman year, and I didn't have the, the – hadn't quite developed the ability to score the ball yet the way I was able to my next two years, but started to find success on defense and, and kind of, again, find my niche as a leader on that team. Um, we had, you know, by far the worst season of my four years at Loyola, my sophomore year. So a lot of guys, myself included, that like had really taken a step as individual players. Um, you know, I think we built confidence that allowed us to, to turn into leaders, um, you know, for our junior season, which is, you know, the year that obviously we, made our run and, and won a championship. Yeah, that is the big season. And that is quite a turnaround from not making it into the tournament in 2011 to going 18-1 and one and winning a national title in 2012. Yeah, and that was, I think we, we caught a lot of people off guard, and it was a perfect storm of, of things that allowed that to happen. We got two transfers, uh, a kid from UNC named Chris Lane and a, a kid from Army um, named Sean O'Sullivan that, that both turned out to help us a lot. Um, we also had a player who had like previously been a, a conference player of the year who had to, had to, uh, went home for a year and then came back. So there was these like three new, really talented players got infused into our roster my junior season. And then I think the other thing was just what I just mentioned. We were, you know, my sophomore year, we were something like seven and five. It was, it was one of the worst seasons actually in, in school history at Loyola. And, but a lot of our, best players and top producers were sophomores. And so it was just like we were, we were really good for sophomores, but we weren't good enough to lead a team, you know, to, a, to an NCAA tournament at that point yet. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of us took that sophomore season personally and, you know, knew that we had enough talent to, to do something really special. And, and we bought in that offseason. And, again, that kind of created this perfect storm of, of junior year where we really, you know, we dominated all of our fall scrimmages and we dominated our preseason spring scrimmages and, you know, we run off this 18 in one season. So it was, it was really a special year where everything just kind of came together. One of my favorite quotes, and I'm not sure what coach said it and of what sport they said it of, but they said they had said, my favorite thing about young players is that they get older, which seems like you guys <laughs> did. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And that's something I always try to remember. It's, um, you know, it's easy in sports to just look at a roster that hasn't changed people much and say like, oh, they're going to be the same thing. But a lot changes in a year and uh, you know, what you do in the off season can make a big difference. And again, I think it was the bad taste we had from, um, from having such a down year as sophomores that really sparked a fire and an already talented group of guys to, to, you know, really get better. And I think every one of us came back better. And like I said, then you, you add in a couple pieces and you get lucky and stay healthy. And that's when you can have uh, these special type of runs. Absolutely. Now, you're a co-captain that year, which is impressive on two fronts. One, because you're just a junior, and two, because it seems like you were a bit of a knucklehead uh, you're a little bit your freshman year. So you obviously grew up and matured. Yeah, well, you know what? I couldn't have been a junior captain if I didn't go through that freshman year. And, you know, I, I wasn't doing anything that 90% of, of college students are doing as, as freshmen, but just understanding that if you want more, you know, you need to, to act different than the rest of your, you know, maybe your classmates are. And going through, you know, an experience where I, I got in trouble and 
um, it allowed me to be a leader for, for other guys. You know, when I was a sophomore, I remember sitting all the freshmen down and just saying, look, here's, you know, and it wasn't just me. It was a, we, a room full of us that, that kind of went through this together and it empowered us to help, you know, the younger guys who were going to have to go through those same struggles and those same transitions and just kind of understanding, you know, where you can push the boundaries a little bit and, and where you shouldn't. And certainly if you are going through something, you know, I was qualified to, to help mentor guys in that way. So I grew up a whole lot from that experience freshman year. And uh, again, I, I don't, if I hadn't gone through that, I don't think I would have been um, able to, to be the leader I was as a junior and, and as a senior. Mm-hmm. Well, you're an incredible leader because you guys, as I said, go 18 and one. The only game you lose is I believe a, a mid-season game to Johns Hopkins, but you're beating these teams that that are really known for their lacrosse, like Duke, for example. I think you beat them once or twice. You beat Denver. Just, you know, you talk about mid-majors. You guys uh, kicked ass. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, we, we in our preseason scrimmages, we played Maryland and UNC, which were two powerhouse programs, oh, and yeah. we, beat them, we beat them both handedly. And then we, and, you know, it's a scrimmage, right? You don't look too much into it, but there was this vibe building in the team of like, oh, we like, we might have something here. You know, we started to kind of have this swagger within our own locker room after that. And then, um, you know, we played a few other teams early in the season that we kind of expected to win. And our first big test was, was Duke. And, uh, you know, Duke was really the pinnacle of college across, you know, for my four years there, they won championships. I think two of two of the four years I was in college and, you know, we beat them in a, in a 12, seven or 12, eight game that, Again, it didn't feel fluky. It felt like the better team had won. And mm-hmm. so that was really like a point where, again, I think we all looked around the locker room at each other and we're like, okay, we, we know we have something special here. Like, let's, let's make sure we don't screw this up. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, again, we, we really uh, we stuck to it that year and, um, you know, gained confidence as the year went and were able to absorb, you know, that one loss to Hopkins was, was actually really painful. It was overtime and, they're a big local rival for us, and we, you know, Loyola's very rarely beaten them in, in the history of the team, so that hurt, but we, we played them on a Saturday, and then we turned around, and we played Denver on a Wednesday, and we ended up beating Denver in overtime, and that propelled us to the conference championship, and so, you know, it was kind of, it was, it was short-lived pain because we were able to turn around and, and get a big win just a couple of days later and, and get back on track. Yeah, and sometimes that that one loss can help, right? Because you're like, oh, you're cruising along, but it's like, oh, wow, we can be beaten. Now let's, you know, get back to work and get this done. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, in, in that loss, we, it was the biggest crowd any of us had ever played in front of by far. And um, it was kind of, a, I think, like, necessary. I don't know so much if, if it was really like we needed to be humbled, but I think it was just like being comfortable on that stage of being one of the top teams in college across. And we got down really big early in that game. And once we kind of settle down at halftime, we, we come storming back and we force overtime. And then, you know, in overtime, anything could happen. I think we hit a pipe and they come down and, and they score. So I think for us, it was, again, it wasn't like this, like humbling moment. It was more of just like, okay, look, like we just can't freak out. Like if we, you know, if we just stay relaxed and we don't let the moment be too big for us, we're, we're the best team. And so in a weird way, I, I, it just, you know, it didn't rattle our confidence too much. And, uh, and again, we, you know, we had a chance, having a chance to play again quickly is just such a good thing because you don't have time to, to sulk on it too much. And, you know, you just immediately turned your attention to Denver, who was, 
you know, by record, a better team than Hopkins that year. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so when we turned around and we beat them in an overtime game on Wednesday, I think that really, like, solidified us feeling good about ourselves heading into the, uh, to the tournament. Yeah, and then you guys, you know, continue to win. You win out. Along the way, you win the ECAC championships, which I believe is the only time you won that tournament in your four years. Yeah, that is correct. That's correct. I, I think we did, my first two years, we didn't have a tournament. It was just like a, you'd crown a regular season winner, but we, we didn't win it my freshman year, although we, we, um, we were the only ECAC team to make the NCAA tournament. We, we ended up losing to Denver in conference, and so they won that. that. And then mm. my sophomore year, we weren't even close. As I mentioned, we really struggled. Yeah, um, yeah and so junior year was, was the only year we won our conference and, uh, and, and the national championship. That's right. Gotcha. You kind of cruise along in the NCAA tournament. You play Denver again now in the Elite Eight. You win, obviously. When that whistle blew, though, and you realized you were going to the Final Four, what did that moment feel like? Yeah, that was one of the best moments uh, in, you know, <laughs> in, in my sports career and definitely of that season. And, and the reason was, you know, again, I, I think that, that season, I think Denver was the second best team in the country. And we had to play them three times. And all wow. three times it was a one-goal game. And all three times we won. And when we saw them, I mean, I remember sitting there on, you know, the day that they put out the tournament bracket and looking and seeing – you know, we had a, we were the one seed, so we had a kind of a, a winnable first round matchup. So you were kind of your eyes immediately went to, okay, who are we playing in the second round? And we all realized it was going to be Denver right away. And I think all of us kind of had chills down our back, like, do we really have to play these guys again? And um, you know, we knew how talented they were. We knew how hard it is to beat you know to beat a team three times in one season that's that good. So that was like in a lot of ways the scariest game for us of the tournament by far. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we, we end up squeaking that game out by one and it was just like a huge weight off your back. I think at that point we all felt like, okay, you know, nothing's going to stop us anymore. Like I think it was, we're playing on, on house money now. And, and again, we felt like we had gotten over the biggest hurdle that we were going to have to face the whole way. Yeah. I mean, I think that was probably the closest game. I mean, I don't think the final four was particularly close. Yeah, I mean, we, we squeaked out the, the, the semifinal 7-5, to five, but it was a game that we were winning the whole way. Um, it never really felt like it was in jeopardy, and then the national championship was the same thing. I mean, it was 9-3, I, I believe, was the final. And, um, again, they're, they're great teams, and it's not like you're just, you know, coasting along, but um, I think both games were, like, games that we had in control kind of from, from wire to wire. So um, that Denver game was certainly like the most adversity we saw along the path. And it's like making it to the final four weekend in lacrosse. That's the big prize, right? In mm-hmm. lacrosse, the biggest crowd you're ever going to play in front of is the final four crowd. And, you know, that's just like, it's, it's you're on ESPN, which is rare for, for you as a lacrosse player. So uh, again, like once you make it to that weekend, it almost just feels like, okay, you know, you can just kind of let loose and, um, to use a more modern term, you just send it, you know, at, at that point. But the, the, the quarterfinals felt like a lot of pressure because, you know, if you fall short there, there's not a whole lot that's going to get remembered about the season. And, uh, you know, you're not going to get that experience of, of being a part of the Final Four, which is kind of every, every little kid's dream. So, yeah. um, so that, that was definitely like a big, a big weekend for us and set us up with a lot of confidence. Yeah, the Final Four in lacrosse is really special. It's played over Memorial Day weekend, and they've done it in Philly the past number of years, correct? Yeah, it seems to me that it's bounced back and forth between Massachusetts and Philly. Like we, we played it in Gillette, and I think they, it's like they'll do two years there and then two years down in Philly and, and then back up there is, gotcha. is how it's been recently. They used to do it in Baltimore, though, didn't they? 
Um, yes, they did. And like, I know some of the biggest crowds they got in Baltimore were in Baltimore and a lot of guys were, were bummed in our year that it wasn't in Baltimore because, you know, Maryland versus Loyola probably would have been a, a huge turnout. Oh God. Um, yeah. but you know, you, you, at that point when you're playing in it, you don't really care. We'll, we'll, we'll win it anywhere. Just give me, give me the ring. Mm. It's so interesting on so many levels that you end up playing Maryland for that championship, right? I mean, one, your dad went there. Two, you kind of wanted to go there. And three, I mean, the coach had said you would probably be better suited at a mid-major. Well, here is this mid-major about to win the national championship. Yeah, I mean, I just, I get chills just hearing you lay that out. I mean, it was <laughs> like a, you couldn't have written a better story for, for me. And mm-hmm. uh, you're exactly right. We, you know, we became the smallest school to ever win a division one title in any sport i believe when we won it our student body was about 3800 undergrad at loyola so um so that mid-major comment like it's not like he was necessarily wrong although in lacrosse loyola you know they had been to a national championship before in 1990 i, I don't think many people in the lacrosse world can, would consider them that mm-hmm. um but it was still kind of ironic that it's here it is like a mid-major school and um you know maryland hadn't had a great season and so it never really crossed my mind that that's who we were going to see. And I, you know, they hear they get up, they get hot and they make it to the final four, but they're playing Duke in, in the seventh. And Duke was an extremely talented team. So even going into the semifinal game, I think uh, I, I kind of thought that, that we'd end up seeing Duke in the championship. And um, I come to learn that at the beginning of the tournament, my dad printed out a bracket and he filled it out and he signed and dated it and he got every game right in that no bracket. Way. You know, he put he, he put his his alma mater all the way through and and obviously our team all the way through and, and picked us to win it. And so um, there was just so many parts of it that that was so special about getting to play Maryland and having that come full circle. And a really cool story is uh, you know my dad's in a email chain with that's run by one of the Maryland assistant coaches and it's used as just kind of, you know, keeping alumni engaged and, and updated on what's going on in Maryland lacrosse and Maryland had beaten Hopkins in the quarterfinals and then Duke in the semifinals. And obviously these are two kind of Goliaths of, uh, of college lacrosse. And before the championship game, you know, they end up one of the alumni or, or one of the people, you know, involved in this ends up sending an email out to, to this big Maryland lacrosse alumni group saying, comparing Maryland's run to team USA in the, in the hockey and the miracle game. And basically like the, the point they made in the email was, you know, even after team USA beat Canada, they still had to beat Finland to win the gold. And mm-hmm. we, you know, we just beat Duke and now we just have to beat Finland. So, you know, kind of comparing Loyola to Finland and, you know, Duke is more like the Russia in, in this story. And my dad got a hold of that and he sent it to me and I read it to the team I read the, the email to the team the night before the game at, a, at our team dinner. And uh, I think that, you know, I, things like this is not why you win or lose the game. You know, we, we won the game because we were the better team. And, and I think that was kind of clear, but um, it didn't sit well with us just because we were here. We were 17 and one and we were the number one seed and we're still just feeling like we're not really getting the respect we deserve. And like in the semifinals against Notre Dame, most of the pundits were picking Notre Dame again, despite us, kind of having been the best team wire to wire. So we did have this chip on our shoulder and, and it goes deeper than that. You know, most of us who played there were guys that would have loved to go play at Duke or Maryland or Hopkins and didn't get recruited by them. So that chip had already existed. And, and then things like this just kept happening, which allowed us to just kind of keep digging into that well for, for extra energy and, and a little bit of extra motivation. Um, and, and I know after the game, our head coach, 
uh, said something to the Maryland head coach and they're great friends and who I have a ton of respect for, for coach Tillman, the head coach of Maryland, but just kind of made reference to like, uh, uh, pretty good for Finland or, or something like that. And, and I think Coach Toomey told me that his, his face turned white. And I ended up getting asked by a reporter after the game about it. I heard you found some email and um, I deflected pretty quickly. But it, it was just kind of kind of cool to, to see how we ended up having a, uh, a spy behind enemy lines. And I know my dad was happy to do it because I think he held a bigger grudge towards Maryland than I did for, for not recruiting me. You know, I, again, I, I had this perspective of like, well, dad, I'm not I don't know if I'm really the best yet. Like. Mm-hmm. where he was kind of like, you know, they, they should have taken a chance. So I think it was really, really special for him to get to kind of be a part of it in that way too. Yeah. But hey, that must have been a really special moment after the game when you're allowed to go up and hug family between you and your dad. Yeah, it was. You know, I, I it had that whole moment after you win a championship, it's just like it's all such a blur. Um, but I do remember like kind of gathering myself. You know, I didn't go jump in the dog pile like I – I just wanted peace um, to try to just soak in what had happened. And the first thing I did was go look up in the crowd. And my dad was, was up at the top. I, I've known this since I was young. He doesn't like sitting around the other parents. He, you know, he, he knows the game a little too well to, to yeah. sit and listen to, uh, to super emotional moms and dads, you know, scream out instructions and things like that. So mm-hmm. I knew not to look right in the mix of people. Um, so I look up at the top and sure enough, he was like standing in the little, mezzanine area and i'll just remember it so much i mean he just had the biggest smile on his face he had both of his arms up in the air and he's wearing this you know green and gray striped shirt in a in a sea of of maryland red and so that was um yeah that was pretty surreal to to just kind of share that that moment with him and then you know my dad and i have always had this relationship of we we like to talk trash to each other probably more than we we show affection and so we certainly you know had our hugs and our moments that day but then as soon as I got back home to Georgia, it became all about reminding him that I had won a championship and he hadn't. And, uh, <laughs> he, he actually lost in the championship game two times and, uh, and made the final four all four years. So oh, he had wow. been really close. And so I would make jokes like, you know, all you needed to be a champion was a, a little bit of mom and, and things like that. <laughs> and uh, he's got all this Maryland gear all over the wall downstairs. And I started, you know, taping up championship articles over his Maryland pictures and, and you know, pull, pulling this chain in that way. So, and I still do. So it's, it's fun that we get to kind of share in that relationship. But obviously I know that, you know, there was nobody on earth happier in that moment than, than he was and my mom was. Of course, of course. That's so funny. And obviously Loyola has a great amount of success that season, but you yourself had a lot of personal success. You were named third-team All-American, which is actually the first time a player from Georgia earned All-American status. So that's something you can be really proud of. Yeah, that's not how I saw it at the time. Um, I thought I was the first-team All-American. So it was, like, <laughs> kind of on, on par with, with uh, everything else from that year. Like, it was just a massive chip on my shoulder. And obviously, mm-hmm. I look back now, and I'm incredibly proud of, of what I accomplished. And, you know, I, I set out to be a two-time All-American and a two-time captain, and I did it. So... You know, from that sense, it, it, there's a, a lot of pride in my heart about that. But my, you know, junior year, I was a third-team All-American. My senior year, I was a second-team All-American. And uh, just as a player by nature, I, I kind of still pull on that for motivation sometimes. And just, you know, you want to be recognized as the best. So that's something that, uh, that I'm still chasing. Yeah. But, hey, I mean, you said when you were little you wanted to be a two-time All-American like your dad. And look at you now. Yeah, I should have said I want to be a two-time first-team All-American. Maybe it would have turned out differently. <laughs> um, but no, that's right. And it's, you know, in our basement at home, we've got, you know, my dad's plaque and my plaque kind of framed and hanging up side by side. And 
you know, again, I'm not, I'm proud of what we did. I'm not like much one to, to relive the glory days. And maybe that's just because I've continued to play and I still have these goals in front of me. Um, so, you know, you don't, you get to here 10 years later from a championship and you don't really remember the, the all American stuff and, and the rewards and especially the individual stuff. You just remember the relationships and the special moments, like, like that moment right after the game with my dad and things like that. That's the stuff that, you know, will will fill my heart for the rest of my life more than, uh, more than any of the accolades. Yeah, no, I agree. But you do have a lot of accolades, <laughs> but um, okay. So, <laughs> so now you're back, right? For your senior year. 2013 and you're a co-captain again it's another good season for Loyola not as good as a year prior you guys go 11 and 5 you get into the tournament but you lose to Duke in double overtime I mean if you have to lose to end your career at least it's an exciting game right yeah yeah you know we were really close and Duke ends up going on to win the championship that year and and really they didn't have a close game so I, I really think we were um, you know, we were right there from, from being right back on top. And we went through quite a bit that year, just uh, um, a lot of ups and downs with, with adversity. You know, we weren't healthy. And I mentioned, like, luck is part of it, right? And, oh, and my sure. senior year, we just didn't have some of that same luck. And, and that Duke game was actually the first game of the season that we played with um, with every, every single one of our start, starters healthy and on the field. And one of the other things we were going through was, one of our starters who he played in that Duke game had gotten diagnosed with cancer um, a few weeks before. So it just, oh, it almost awful. just seemed like obstacle after obstacle after obstacle my senior year. And, you know, when we lost that game to Duke, like it, it was less of a disappointment for me. And it was almost a feeling of relief. Like it was just mm. such a challenging season trying to, to repeat and do it again. And it, it gives me a ton of respect for, you know, in any sport programs that are able to do that because it was, it was hard to have that target on your back and, you know, have some, the ball kind of not bounce away a few times and have to have to face that adversity. So it was a really exciting game, and obviously I, I wish we had won it, and I think we were good enough to, uh, to make a run at, at back-to-back. But, uh, you know, as I mentioned, Duke was, uh, was quite a program at that time, and, mm-hmm. you know, we, that was, that was going to be a challenge to, uh, yeah. to get by them. You're towards an award nominee that year, which is pretty much the highest honor in the sport. And you leave Loyola with a school record of 30 goals for a long pole and second all-time in cause turnovers. So excellent career you should be so proud of. Yeah, you know, again, it was like I had a chance after to kind of sit back and look at all the things I was able to accomplish. And, you know, some of those, that you know, being a two-time captain and a two-time All-American was always in my head, but to be honest, like I never dreamed that I was going to win a national championship or, you know, be in the conversation for a Tewarton award or anything like that. So um, it was pretty cool to just kind of realize what all I had done at the end of it. And, you know, as I, I've kind of mentioned throughout, it's like I, at this point now, knew I was going to play pro lacrosse. And I remember, you know, on the bus home from that Duke game, texting, you know, the GM of, of the Boston Cannons, which was the team that I'd been drafted by and, and saying like, let's go, I'm ready to go. So I really awesome. quickly kind of turned the page into, you know, what's next. And, and I, you know, I, I wanted to keep chasing uh, goals and, as a player in the sport. And you know, I'm really lucky that here I am eight years later still doing that. Yeah, absolutely. So you get drafted in 2013 after you graduate. Now, explain this to me, because I know there are a few professional lacrosse leagues, and I know now you're in the Premier Lacrosse League, but were you always in the Premier League, or did you kind of jump around? <laughs> Yeah, no, so there, there, there was only one for a long time. It was called gotcha. Major League Lacrosse. And so my first six years were spent in Major League Lacrosse. And, um, you know, frankly, it just, it was a challenge. It, you know, we weren't paid 
well at all. And, you know, there was no benefits. It, it wasn't a full-time job, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, our, our, your rookie wage in that league was, was $6,000 for the summer. Wow. So it's, uh, you know, it's more of a hobby almost at that point than it is a, a profession. But at the same time, you did have, you know, you had a lot of the, the best lacrosse players in the country who, you know, wanted to play and were participating in this league and were starting to train. And, you know, there was opportunities for Team USA, which helped, kept a lot of guys motivated. So, it got to this point where it was almost like the players were outgrowing the league a little bit. And, and we were frustrated with kind of the lack of marketing and the lack of, of growth that we were seeing and, and kind of the inaction at the league level. Um, and so one of the players, a guy named Paul Rabel, he started the premier lacrosse league and, you know, he basically went around and he got kind of the top 40 or 50 guys and, and made his pitch as to, to his vision of, of pro lacrosse and how we can, you know, build it to the next level and turn it into a full-time career and, and, um, you know, generate bigger crowds and all of these things. And, um, you know, he's made that happen. So we've had two years now of, of PLL. We had a, a regular season as our inaugural season, which was a, a huge success. And, uh, and then this past year, we did a bubble season, a, uh, a little tournament out in Utah in a, you know, in a, a quarantine bubble and had a bunch of NBC time slots and awesome. had a lot of success with that as well. So it's been a, a major upgrade, I think, from all of our perspectives. Um, with this new league and it's, you know, better wages and it's health benefits and it's, you know, created this thing where now the top players from college, as they come out and enter the league, like they're not thinking about getting other jobs. You know, they see a yeah. path to, you know, be a player and maybe with some sponsors and maybe, you know, coaching camps here or there, you can make a, a full-time wage instead of having to, you know, work a sales job and, and be a weekend warrior. And ultimately that leads to a better product on the field, which is going to help to grow the sport and its popularity at the professional level. So, um, there's my, my dog, oh, uh, Leo, making an appearance here in the, in the podcast. But uh, so anyway, that's where I'm at now is, is in the PLL and happy to be there. That's great. And it's great that the wages are better. But I mean, as you know, it's still very different being a professional lacrosse player compared to being a professional hockey or football or basketball or baseball player. Yes, that's, that's definitely right. And, you know, they, they have really, and I can't stress this enough, I mean, they have drastically improved <laughs> the wage situation in the premier lacrosse league. I mean, it was, it was, you know, I, my salary w- was more than tripled uh, when, when we made the switch and again, the health benefits and things like that. And then the other thing that they provide is a marketing platform. They do an incredible job on social and, and all these other places, which allows you to then take advantage of your, your likeness. And all of a sudden you become more valuable for camps and you, um, you know, you get more opportunities with, with sponsors and brands and things like that. So it certainly is different where, you know, we're not getting rich off of it um, right now. But another really cool thing that they did is they offered all of the um, initial players, so all the guys that kind of took the leap of faith and, and, and joined them to start the league, uh, we all get equity as well. So they set it up essentially in the same way as a, a tech company where, you know, as we, as we play, we get vested interest into the league. And so, you know, there is a chance that one day uh, if the league's able to do what you know, something like Major League Soccer's done and, and explode into, uh, you know, a really formidable league, um, that could turn out to be a big payday for, for a lot of the original guys. So they have created great opportunities that way. But what, what it also has done for myself, certainly, and, and I think a lot of guys in pro lacrosse is it's created this incredible, like, entrepreneur network. You know, there's mm-hmm. so many guys in the league who's to realize, okay, if I'm going to be able to train and have a stick in my hands every day, and be successful as a pro lacrosse player, I need to find a creative way to make a living because 
you know, if you're sitting in a cubicle and you're working full-time hours, it's just really hard for more than a year or two. You know, the first couple of years, you're still kind of in college shape. But once you get to year three, year four, year five, it becomes really challenging to, to work a, a traditional full-time job and also be able to play at the highest level. So um, I was lucky enough to play with a handful of guys right away who had started, you know, a camp and clinic business. Another guy, you know, in Paul who had start, ultimately started the league who really had mastered social media and marketing and branding himself and, and creating this kind of brand, this, this brand in himself. And, um, you know, I've seen other guys who had, who had started like lacrosse head companies. And so there were just all these entrepreneurs around me. And that really showed me like, okay, you know, I took a job in banking right away and for lacrosse. And so I was doing the kind of play on the weekends, you know, work nine to nine during the week. And after two years of that, I realized like, I'm not going to be able to last playing pro if I, if I keep this up. So having this group of players around me who and seeing all these entrepreneurs and all these creative ways that they had figured it out, it really helped to empower me to take some of the same risk and, and leave my, my finance job. And, you know, I, I moved back to Atlanta and I started coaching lacrosse at first. And that led me to, you know, some leadership development work and just kind of led me to, to, to nonprofit work. And, you know, been really a, a great experience of like, learning how to kind of put together a career around being a lacrosse player. And, and it's taught me a lot of cool things. Yeah. I mean, as I said in the beginning, it's impressive what you've been doing. So you mentioned you coach, right? Or you did coach or are you still currently coaching? At... I still coach. Okay. Yeah. So I'm coaching. I coach a little bit of club lacrosse um, down here at a, a group called Thunder LB3 in Atlanta. And I, I coach a high school in the spring and it's not like I'm, you know, I'm not teaching in the school. I'm what's called a community coach. So it's okay. kind of just, you know, I show up on, for practicing games in the spring and, and do that. Um, and then, yeah, again, I'd give a go foundation and we could probably do a whole nother hour podcast on the number of different jobs I, I occupy currently. <laughs> well, maybe not an hour, but I do want to touch on them. You're a personal <laughs> development coach. Tell me about that. Yeah. So, you know, again, I, I mentioned like leadership has just always been an important part of like the athletic experience for me. And, and, uh, my mom is really where, where that comes from. So she, um, she's had a, a career in, in corporate leadership and development. She's worked for, for Fortune 500 companies in that space and, and culture. And, um, you know, at, at right around when I was graduating college, she, she left her, her corporate job and she started her own consulting firm, you know, doing leadership development. And so the story of me coming to it was, you know, one, I, I certainly had learned from her, from, from my dad, who, who again was a, was the captain athlete as well, but really my mom was the one mindset wise who, um, who taught me a lot of, uh, of the things that I used. Right. And so I would always lean into her when I needed help, you know, with, with that side of the game. And when I moved home from, from, uh, from New York to Atlanta and I started coaching at this high school, well, my mom started telling me, um, let me come talk to your high school team. She's like, you know, I'm, I'm, I started this consulting business and she does executive coaching and things like that. And she's like, I've got some tips that I think can help. And <laughs> here I am 23 in my first year coaching a, a varsity high school team. And I'm like, mom, no way. <laughs> I'm not bringing my mom in as a guest speaker for my, <laughs> my high school team. So I pushed back on her for a whole year. And in my second year coaching, um, she, she was doing it again. She's watching my games and she's like, I've got, you know, I've got a skill that I want to teach your guys. Give me 10 minutes, give me 10 minutes. And so at this point I, I cave and I say, okay, you got 10, you know, I'll give you 10 minutes before practice with them. And she came in and she just gave this amazing speech about, 
um, about resilience and, and how to kind of uh, focus forward and overcome adversity in the moment, right, in the game. And uh, it changed the course of my season. And she taught this, this skill that she calls rapid rebound. And, you know, I, I saw my players use it all season long, and I used it all season long. And, and so that was like a light bulb moment. And I loved coaching, and I still love coaching, but I really love coaching the people more than I like coaching the, the sport, if that makes sense. You know, it, it, was, does, it yeah. was the emotional side of it and the mindset side of it that, that really sparked my interest. And, and I, I obviously love the lacrosse side of it, but I think my passion there is it probably lies more as a player or else I maybe would have pursued college coaching. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went to her and just said, listen, I, I see this. And, and obviously, you know, when I think of long-term career, I saw it as a way to kind of have a tie-in back to corporate America. Um, so when I was done playing, I, I had a skill set that if I did want to jump back into the workforce in that way, that, that I could do that and, uh, and kind of follow in my mom's footsteps. And so she had a partner at the time who worked in, as a holistic healer for a long time. And, and um, my mom kind of, and her put together her kind of skills around emotional intelligence and my mom's understanding of, of leadership programs in the corporate space and how that works. And um, I trained under her partner for about a year. And then I started running programs of my own for, for a lot of the kids I coached. And I started helping my mom with, with clients in the corporate space. And over the last five years, that's really evolved. And so I still do it, you know, kind of on a part-time basis. And, and I like to keep my focus as a, uh, a player, number one. And, um, but it's been, you know, there's so much crossover there. And it's been, first off, really amazing to get to work with my mom and, and learn from her. And then um, also just kind of slowly and patiently build a skill set in something that, Again, I feel like, you know, when the time comes that I do hang it up and I do need to, to look to do something more full time, um, you know, that's, that's certainly a path that, that I think I can continue to explore. Yeah, I bet you can, especially, I mean, going towards um, more businesses. I'm sure they'd love to have you. Yeah, you could probably you know, just do a contract. Of, it, it's kind of like, uh, you know, there's this big awakening happening, you know, with, with mindfulness and, and, and yoga and the popularity mm-hmm. of a lot of this stuff. and it's right up that alley. And, and I think the other thing that's just attractive to me about it is like, uh, you know, when I left the, the banking job and decided to be a lacrosse player, I just realized like I can never go back to, to doing something that doesn't spark a fire in my heart. That's yeah. something that I don't feel like I'm making an impact and I love doing and teaching these skill sets is that right. And it doesn't really matter for me if it's, you know, a, a corporate executive or a 10 year old kid, it's, you know, it's life skills that can really, really help people and, and learning a lot of this stuff from my mom's partner, it changed my life and, and my relationships and who I was as a person and, and how I showed up for the people in my life. And so to be able to take some of the, the knowledge that, that I've gotten in that area and, you know, tie it in with stories of, of being a professional player, um, it, does, it does kind of light that fire that I mentioned. And, you know, it makes me feel like I'm, I'm giving back to the world in a, a positive way. And I love that piece of it. So um, wherever my kind of career takes me, I think that's something that I'll always do is, is, you know, continue to try to be someone who, who can be a teacher in that way for, uh, for anybody that, that feels like they, they want to learn. That's amazing. You have a YouTube series called Rat Chats, and that's free, and you give some personal development strategies. Do you still do that? I don't, um, uh. but that's something that I did just pick up on, and, like, I, I was, you know, I was just trying to start throwing stuff out there in any way, and, um, you know, it wasn't really like an intentional reason for stopping. It's a lot of the stuff that I share on there is the stuff that I teach and I'm still doing tons of, you know, in, in the pandemic, been Zoom workshops left and right um, and teaching a lot of those skills. Uh, the, a shift for me a little bit came 
when the PLL was created, which I mentioned was about two years ago now, mm-hmm. in that almost like I originally, when I quit my finance job, it, I, I kind of made a decision to recommit myself to being a player. And like, here I was now, you know, 27, 28, and my body isn't reacting the same way. And, you know, I used to be able to go to the gym for an hour and get a workout done. And now it's like, I need 40 minutes to warm up and then I need 30 minutes for an ice bath. And then I need to go see the PT for 30 minutes. So like, um, a lot of the things that are required to play at the highest level, I think into your thirties are more time consuming. So I made a conscious effort to just say, look, I am not going to stop my other ventures, right? And I'm going to continue to be a, a leadership and personal development coach, but I'm going to make sure that the focus of my time and energy is prioritized in being a player. And that means grocery shopping and, and, and eating right, cooking every single meal that I eat during the day. You know, if my body tells me from a hard workout that I need rest, it's give myself rest over, you know, spend those two or three hours trying to sell leadership programs. So you know, I've learned how to just kind of prioritize my time in that way. Um, and, and that's something that you have to do when you're, when you're taking on a lot of different things. Um, so so I, that's probably part of the reason for, for scaling back rat chat. But uh, I do try to, you know, share across my social platforms a lot of these tips and strategies. And again, it's, it's not something that I'm, I'm leaving behind by any stretch of the imagination. Um, just something that I'm being a little bit more mindful of, of you know, where I, I spend my time right now. Yeah, that makes sense. You have to put your lacrosse career first. But as a podcast host, I think when your lacrosse career comes to an end, whenever that might be, you should look into starting your own podcast about personal development. I bet it would do really well. Yeah, I appreciate that. You never know. You know, that's certainly something that's that's crossed my mind. And and, uh, I like to talk. You know, I do like (laughs) to tell stories and, and I like to talk. So we'll have to see. But, uh, you know, I've, I've really been exploring writing a lot as well. And, and that's a medium that I've enjoyed and, and have learned an awful lot about, you know, leadership and personal development from. And, and in particular, like I, I, I tend to lean towards enjoying fiction books. Um, so I, I like, you know, finding stories that, that teach real life skills into an interesting story that can kind of grab your imagination. So um, I've got a lot of different ideas of how I can kind of bring some of this knowledge to the world. And, and, you know, the thing that, again, I'm so grateful for lacrosse because I don't feel this immense pressure of like, I have to start a company now. I have to write a book now. I really feel like I can just be patient and and learn and go through this process. And, um, you know, when you make it to high level sports, if you understand, like I, I, I spent 17 years to get, to get good enough at lacrosse to play at Loyola. And then I spent another, you know, five to get good enough to, to, really feel like I was one of the better players in the world. And so, you know, you look at that, that's 22 years. So I think of it the next chapter in the same way. If I can, you know, spend time right now and spend these next 10 years really learning and cultivating a, a skill set and knowledge around something, then, you know, by the time I'm done playing, I'll be ready to kind of take that to the next level and, and hopefully become an expert. And whether that's, you know, writing or podcasting or simply just coaching and teaching a lot of this stuff, um, you know, I'm confident I'll be able to, find similar success in that the way I did in in lacrosse. Absolutely. And speaking of success in lacrosse, I mean, you're a five-time all-star in pro lacrosse. That's impressive. Um, Yeah. yeah, Thank you. It's, uh, it's a little, again, it's a little bit surreal um, for me to to think about that, but uh, yeah, I've been able to have a lot of success and and I really think that's a result of committing to it. You know, I'm, I'm not a guy who um, is still the most talented player out there in my opinion at all, but, you know, I made a mental decision that I was going to gonna go after it and, and invest my time and energy in the training and, and to work it hard. And, 
you know, that's been a, a strategy that has yet to fail me. So uh, I'll continue to, to do that as I, I push forward here. As you should. So you had mentioned your nonprofit. It's called the Give and Go Foundation. Give me the details on that. Yeah, so the Give and Go Foundation is um, it's a, a nonprofit organization started by a teammate of mine, Adam Gittleman, and myself. And our mission, you know, simply is, is to empower underserved across communities worldwide. And, you know, we left this broad mission statement because our goal really was just to get out into the world and find you know, places where lacrosse was being used as a vehicle to help people, right? And, and we think about all the great things it did in our life and, and all the things you learn from being part of a team sport and, and lacrosse specifically, I think. Anybody that plays lacrosse will tell you it's, it's a really special community and, and that goes back to the roots of the game. It's, uh, you know, it's a Native American sport and it's a very spiritual sport in that way and, and you know, it was originally used as a, a form of prayer and a way to honor uh, a god and, um you know, having a sport in that, like that in your life that, that cultivates creativity and discipline and community, and that can be a life-changing experience. And we, you know, we started traveling because we had a love for travel and we wanted to explore. And, and when we were going out on these trips, we were just looking up lacrosse programs in all these countries and saying, hey, we're pro lacrosse players from the States. Like, we'd love to come out to a practice. And, you know, we started kind of running free clinics. And over the course of two years, we kind of realized like, wow, we, you know, there's something here. Like there's, there's programs all over the world, but they really struggle with resources. They struggle to, to get equipment. They struggle to find coaching. You know, a lot of times they struggle financially to be able to travel around and play in different events and things. And we went on trips with a few existing nonprofits, one in particular, which was called Lacrosse the Nations. We went down to Managua, Nicaragua, and, you know, they were offering lacrosse as an after-school program, you know, in a really, really poor part of, you know, uh, of Managua, which is a really poor city. And these kids had nothing, you know, they, they don't have any, any sort of extracurricular activities. Their parents are, are working. So, you know, if it weren't for this organization, um, it'd be really challenging for a lot of these kids to, to be inspired and, and, and find something to do with their time. And they've been in existence nearly 15 years now and doing amazing things down there. And, Adam and I took a trip down there, and this was kind of the straw that, that started the Give and Go Foundation. And in the week that we were there and sharing on our social, they had one of their best fundraising weeks of the year. And so that was kind of this aha moment where we were like, look, there's already a lot of, of great people and organizations that are using lacrosse as a way to help the plant. And we have this platform as pro lacrosse players to be able to tell their story to, you know, the lacrosse community in the States and, and you know, ask them for their support. And so early on, that's really what we did was we, we fundraised and we passed the money along to programs like Lacrosse the Nations and to certain people in, in you know, countries in Europe and in South America that were looking to start programs and, and get lacrosse off the ground and, and to make a difference. We helped to fund the first collegiate program on, on continental Europe and wow. had some really cool projects come our way. And you know, every year it, it just seems to grow and, and continue to take a life of its own. You know, w with COVID, we, we've kind of looked more domestically at, at ways that we can make a difference. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, we're constantly, you know, doing gear drives for, for different inner city programs. And just recently we announced uh, two scholarship funds, uh, the Kyle Harrison Scholarship, which will be um, for a black lacrosse player, uh, male or female, um, to help them pursue higher education in lacrosse. And, and another one that we call the Turtle Island Scholarship, which will be um, for an indigenous lacrosse player to, to pursue uh, higher education in lacrosse. So we're really excited about that and to, to be able to kind of give back to those communities and, 
um, you know, excited to just keep pushing forward and, and see where this game can take me. I've, I've been able to lucky enough to coach across in, in over 20 plus countries and on four different continents in, in the last five years since we've uh, really been doing this and working with Give and Go. So um, the plan is to, is to hopefully get to all of them before it's all said and done. Wow, that is so noble of you. Yeah, no, listen, I feel lucky. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's great. And, you know, I, it, it just feels like a duty when you, when you play the sport to, to pass it along. That's like something that, you know, lacrosse people preach um, all around is like, if you, if you're, you know, if you use this stick, you, you give one to your neighbor, you know, and it, it's how the game is going to grow at, at a really organic level. And so, um, you know, we feel really good about the work that we're doing and also really lucky that, you know, we're in a position where it's, you know, I'm able to, to travel and, and have all these incredible cultural experiences and, and see the world. And, you know, it's not just about the programs that were, or the people that we're giving back to. It's also about the coaches, right? We want to encourage Canadian and American high school, college, you know, post-college lacrosse players to make coaching lacrosse part of your experience. If you want to go take a trip to, to Italy, you can go see all the sites and, and that's great. And you can drink the wine and eat the pasta or whatever you're going to do, but it's not going to be the same experience as giving back to that community and going and spending some time coaching some local kids. And um, we've made so many friends and we spent holidays abroad and we stayed with families and in Argentina and Spain and, you know, all over the world. And so, you know, and we felt like that's helped us change for the better and, and, you know, learn a lot more about, about the world and, and, you know, just how, how similar people are all over. And, uh, so we want to just use Give and Go as, as also a platform to help. You know, we've sent um, a handful of college kids on trips um, where they've gotten to go and, and travel around Europe and, and have some of the same experiences we have where they're running these huge clinics in, in Spain and in Portugal, um, in Denmark and all these places. And so uh, it's really twofold. It's, it's about giving back to the communities we go to, but it's also about, you know, helping, uh, um, like I said, American and Canadian lacrosse players and, and people to have this experience of, of giving back when they travel and, and seeing what that's all about. I love that. What is it? Do you have like a favorite place that you've visited? Oh, that's so hard. So <laughs> people ask that. Um, and it's like, it's so hard not to just say like the most recent one, yeah. but I, I do think Managua and the country of Nicaragua has a special place in my heart um, just because of um, the work that's being done there and, and how impactful it is. So just to like every time to go and to see that, and, you know, I've been down there three times and I've like watched some of these kids grow up um, and still keep in touch with them. And so that's a place that I really love. And then you, you know, you, you spend a week in Managua coaching and then you, you know, you spend the weekend out in, uh, in San Juan del Sur at the beach and it's not so bad to, to relax there either. So um, I don't know if I, you know, if I was, if you were holding me on the line, I don't know if it's my favorite, but that's kind of the one that I always jumps out at me as, as just being really special. Okay, nice, nice. And I love that you guys have created those scholarships, one for a black lacrosse player and one for an indigenous lacrosse player, because we need more black players in lacrosse, that's for sure. And then Native Americans, they started the sport of lacrosse. So I think that's awesome. Yeah, yeah we're really, really proud of that. And look, the, the experience for, lacro- for, for black athletes in lacrosse is something that I've been acutely aware of for a long time. You know, mm-hmm. I, I've never had a black teammate at any level who hasn't gone through some sort of, at the very least, implicit bias where, you know, white teammates and opponents may not even realize it, but they're saying things that are hurtful or that are just constantly reminding them that they're different. Right. And, um, I've had some, some relationships that I'm really close with and that I've gotten an inside look at that. And so it just felt important to us to, 
um, you know, to one to take action, obviously this moment in our country. And, and that was such a big topic of conversation and um, sharing on social media is great and, and being an advocate in that way, but we wanted to do more and we wanted to take action. And we thought that this would be a way where we could demonstrate leadership and just show that, you know, it's going to take mindful action to make the sport more inclusive. And we have an awful long way to go, um, but we're happy to kind of push that forward. And then I think I could just echo all of those sentiments about the indigenous people. I mean, it's, you know, it's, you just mentioned it. It's a Native American game. Even somebody like myself who who feels so attached to the spiritual side of the game and loves to use, the, you know, the phrases, the medicine game and the creator's game. But it's like, are we really educating ourselves on what that means? And are we really walking the walk when it comes to that? Or do we just like to promote the sport in that way? And, you know, we have indigenous leaders in our sport. We partnered with with Turtle Island Lacrosse, which is run by a guy, Randy Stats and, and Brendan Bomberry, or two uh, professional players that are, um, that are Iroquois and, and, you know, the Thompson family is a really famous family in lacrosse that's, that's a native family. And they speak about this all the time. And so again, we just felt like this was an opportunity for us to try to, to be leaders and to try to take action and, and do more than just kind of talk about the, the creation of the game, but really give back to that community. Um, and then also just be advocates for them as far as sharing the story of lacrosse. And, you know, we hope to do more. We hope to, to, be a conduit to bring some of these native players out to all these countries we've gone to and let them come and tell the story of the game. Because we think it's really important that as the game grows worldwide, you know, the, the story, the origin story of it is not lost. And, and that's something that we feel really passionately about. So beyond just the scholarship, um, we're going to be announcing some plans in the future to, um, you know, to bring, to bring the Turtle Island guys out to, to some of these countries and to make sure that, that, you know, people, lacrosse players all over the world understand that, you know, to us and, and to the people who created it really is more than, than just the game. It's more than just the stick. And again, we feel like that's part of what makes our sport so special. That's awesome. Now the website for give and go, do they take donations? Yeah. Yeah. So the best way to, to donate or get involved is, is definitely the website, givegofund.com. Um, and then, you know, we're, we're most active on, on Instagram and on Twitter. Um, and that's just give GoFund on both those platforms. So uh, um, appreciate that and the opportunity to plug that. And again, right now we're, we're fundraising for these scholarships and um, we're hoping COVID is going to allow us to, to head out to some of the Caribbean islands and, and work with some programs in, uh, in Bermuda and Dominican Republic um, over the holidays. And so, you know, that basically just involves getting out there. Um, running free clinics, you know, taking a bunch of equipment and donating it to the to the local organizers out there and, and, and making sure that we're supporting them uh, any other way we can. So we're excited about what's coming up there and uh, and really excited about what we have, again, going on with the scholarships right now. Well, I'll definitely be donating to a great cause. Awesome. That is very appreciated. Of course. Now, Scott, in your free time, which really doesn't seem like you have much, but you enjoy writing, specifically poetry. Now, have you always been interested in writing? Yeah, so this is something that, again, I, I you know, I mentioned just kind of the, the leadership and personal development and, and the, this idea of writing about that has, has long been in my head. Um, you know, writing poetry specifically, like I, when I was, as, as many kids who grew up in Atlanta, I really loved rap music when I was young <laughs> and I would, uh, I would freestyle and I would write raps and, um, you know, I, I like grew up on that in a lot of ways. And, uh, uh, I think now when I look back, like perhaps that was like where, like my love of words and, and you know, metaphors and a lot of the kind of the, the poetic way of, uh, of writing comes from. But, uh, I started taking it really seriously about five years ago. I had an uncle who, who wrote poetry um, unfortunately he, he has since passed away, but before he did, he shared with me a lot of what he wrote and that was really inspiring for me. 
And I, I, I kind of just realized as I was traveling on these give and go trips and as I was, you know, working with, with humans of all ages on their emotional skills and their personal development skills, I was inspired, you know, inspired by the experience of life and, and, um, you know, specifically just human emotion and, and how we <laughs> interact with our own thoughts. And, and, um, you know, I, I know all too well how that can really affect our health in a lot of ways. So poetry has just been a great outlet for me to kind of take a lot of the things I've learned through travel and, and through my work with, with, you know, personal development and share it in a, you know, in a way that I enjoy and that I think, uh, you know, other people enjoy. So that's something that I'm working on, uh, especially hard right now is, you know, I'm, I'm hoping to put together a, a book in the near future. And I've started to kind of share some of the things I write out on social. And again, that's just another one of these projects that, um, I'm not sure where it's going to go, but I'm going to continue to pursue it. And, and I, you know, I think that, um, I think that it's a healthy thing for more people to explore the creativity and especially right. The masculine world of, of professional sports to just be somebody that's not afraid to kind of show the, the other side of, of my head and my heart to have this creative outlet. Um, you know, that's, that's something that I'm proud of and, and I like talking about and I like doing, so I'll, uh, I'll continue to lean into that. And if all goes well, who knows, maybe I can just travel and coach across and write poems for, for the rest of my life after I finish playing and, uh, that doesn't sound like such a bad gig either. No, that doesn't sound bad at all. That's so cool, though, and I, and I think you nailed it on the head, right? You're more than just an athlete. There's more sides to you. I think that's awesome. Yeah, I think, I mean, that, and that's, that's every athlete. I mean, it's, even if you're, you know, even if you are in a sport where it's this full-time profession, you're in the NFL, the NBA, that's not all who you are as a person, right? There's so much about your experience in life that goes on outside of that, and so Again, I just think it's really healthy. I think everybody has some sort of creative outlet in them, whether it's podcasting, painting, drawing, writing, you know, whatever it is, playing music. Um, but I think it's healthy for people to explore that, that side of them and, and, again, not be afraid to share it and talk about it. Um, I, again, I know that's just helped me to, to grow as a person and, and to become, um, I think, a little bit more self-aware and, and a little bit more stress-free, frankly, in my life. And so... Yeah. Um, if I can share some of those things with other people, that's, uh, that's something I'd love to do. Nice. Well, hurry up and write that poetry book. Cause I want to read it. <laughs> okay. Well, hopefully some publishers call me from this podcast. That'd be great. <laughs> yeah, that would be, that would be the dream, right? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Scott, I've loved our conversation. I like to end the podcast with a couple fun questions. How does that sound? That sounds wonderful. I'm all about it. All right. First question. What professional sports teams, besides the one that you're on, do you root for? Ooh, good question. It's hard being a sports fan in Atlanta. I don't know if you're aware of that, <laughs> but pro sports down here tend to break your heart more than, yeah. they, uh, more than they make you happy. Um, you know, I, I'm a Falcon Talk Braves, but if I had to give you one, I'd probably say the Braves, and I think most people from Atlanta would say that I'm not really a baseball fan, to be honest with you, but that's just uh, that team is the most entrenched in the culture down here, and like, grew up spending my birthdays at Braves games. And um, so I, I don't really watch them a ton, but I, I take a lot of pride in them still. So uh, I'll, I'll say the Braves is probably the, the one team that I, I like the most. All right. Well, I'm in New Jersey, real close to New York. We're not big Braves fans. We still don't like Chipper Jones. So oh, <laughs> I like you, <Perfect>. Scott. <laughs> <laughs> nope. I love to hear that. I love to hear that. That's good. We've, we've always bullied the Mets. That's, uh, that's something that, that I've, I've been seeing since I was a little kid. <laughs> Now, does that 2017 Super Bowl still break your heart? 
You know, uh, you get, I mean, yes, yes, it does. Like, it sucked. Like, you get numb to it now with, the, with the, what the Falcons have done since then. Um, but, yeah, that's, that was not fun. I mean, they, they, you know, we were all pretty excited and just kind of go through that. And, and that, that kind of tough experience as a sports fan was, was pretty challenging. And I think for a lot of us, you know, in, 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 in the South, people cheer for college football more than they cheer for pro football. So oh, people are bigger Georgia fans and Auburn fans, Bama fans, than they are Falcons fans in Atlanta. And, that, and that's just a matter of fact. But I never was because, obviously, I went to Loyola. We didn't even have football. So I think that really stung for me because I have so many friends who are pro sports people, you know, who cheer for the, the Northeastern teams, the Eagles and the Patriots and the Giants and all, all you guys. And so that was especially tough for me to swallow because it was uh, – finally going to be my time to have some bragging rights over uh-huh. them. And uh, that was a pretty heartbreaking defeat for sure. Yeah, it's, it's tough. But hey, have some faith, right? It'll, it'll happen one day. Uh, uh, yeah, if you <laughs> say so. <laughs> uh, next question. If you could have dinner with one person, living or dead, who would it be? Uh, that's a good question. So, man, there's, there's, there's a few people that come to mind. Um, I'm going to give you two answers, if that's okay. That's fine. It can be a three-person dinner. Um, Or I'll say this. I think I'd want to have dinner with Martin Luther King Jr. I I just, you know, he's he's from Atlanta. Obviously, somebody that's, you know, that's uh, an icon in the world and and certainly here in Atlanta. Um, And what I'm just so interested in about him is just his, his, of course, his, his heart and his head and all of his wisdom, but, you know, his power of communicating. You know, he was just such an incredible communicator. Um, and, and, you know, a message that a lot of people carried, he was able to, to get out to the entire world. And so I'd really want to explore that side of him. Um, and then I think when we finished dinner, I'd want to go out for drinks with uh, Paulo Coelho, who he wrote his famous book is The Alchemist. Um, he's a Brazilian writer. He actually started out as a songwriter. I, I find that he writes in a really poetic style and, and I really enjoy his writing. And um, he seems like somebody that would be a, a fun person to, uh, to go have a beer with. So those are the, the two people who I think I would most want to, uh, to talk to. Two great answers. All right. Last question. The holidays are coming up. What is your favorite holiday movie? Wow. My favorite holiday movie. That's a good question. Um, no, I don't know. Like, like that. I'm not, uh, I'm not like, super and this is like this sounds like such a grinchy answer but i'm not like so excited about holiday movies the way the way that some people are um <laughs> what i think of when i think of the holidays is traveling the last like four or five years i've i've used the holiday time frame to, to get out of the country and go see some really cool parts of the world um but if i had to pick one i, I think i would pick the grinch which is funny that i, that I said that but the jim <laughs> carrey the, the jim carrey grinch movie is uh is, is one that i really really love and I always loved Santa Claus go- growing up, too. That was uh, another oh, one. So I figure Elf and, and some others are the popular ones, but those are the two that I think back to childhood that I enjoyed watching the most was, was Santa, the, the Santa Claus and, and, Grin- and the Grinch. All right. The Grinch chose the Grinch. <laughs> <laughs> no way. I can't think of myself like that. But, you know, <laughs> it, it is what it is. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty cool that you use your time to travel. I mean, you're right. You get time off that then, so why not? Go to pretty cool places. Yeah, and I'm, I'm lucky to have a family that's supportive of that. You know, like, obviously, the family time is so important and such a, a big part of the holidays. But, you know, my parents are kind of like, hey, look, we'll have Christmas on December 18th, and you can take off on the 22nd. And so we'll get the whole family <laughs> together uh, a week early. And, and 
it's obviously it's the time of the year where you don't have to you know work as much and there's no real coaching or anything like that going on so again for, for me and for give and go it's been like a really great time for us to get out to the world and, and run some free clinics and see some cool places and there is something like especially unique about spending Christmas in another country in another city, right? Like you experience Christmas in a different way. And I mentioned like we've stayed with, you know, I've spent Christmas and New Year's with a family in Chileu, Argentina. Like go look up where that is, like the middle of Patagonia somewhere. And, and so I've been to some really random locations where they play lacrosse and spent some holidays there and, and have had some like really amazing experiences where I'm on FaceTime on, on New Year's with my mom and I've got, you know, my Argentinian mom sitting next to me. So um, that's, uh, that's always been a, a cool part of the holidays for me. Wow, that's amazing. But not I'll many movies on those trips. Not many movies. You know, more, more exploring and, and uh, enjoying our time. So maybe that's why I'm not the best person for the Christmas movie question. Yeah, well, that's all right. But hey, I mean, I, there probably won't be lacrosse, but I would love to, you know, one day get out to another country for Christmas. That sounds like a lot of fun. Why not? Why no lacrosse? Look, hey, everybody's a teacher. You know, you don't have to. You don't have to play the sport. You just gotta be willing to carry a bag of sticks out there and, and smile and try with some kids, and, and we can get you signed up. So right, don't rule it out true. just yet. Okay. All right. <laughs> I can do that. I can hold a bag. <laughs> that's right. We brought. We have had some some friends and people come who don't play, and uh, again, it's, you can still get involved and, and give back, especially when it's kids. It's you know, in a lot of the locations. Um, it's less about teaching them to be expert lacrosse players and more about just investing your time and, and creating smiles. And I'm oh. quite certain you'd be very good at that. Oh, thank you so much. Scott, thanks for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation. And good luck with your lacrosse career, your foundation, your personal development coaching, and your writing. Got a lot going on. I love it. <laughs> Throw a bunch of darts. One of them will stick, right? I really appreciate it. This was fun. So. Thank you for having me on. Of course. All right, everyone. That was my chat with Scott Ratliff. Hope you enjoyed it. What an impressive guy. He's doing a lot of good for the lacrosse community. I'll be back soon to speak with another outstanding athlete.